if you're a fan of Hong Kong cinema, you've accepted that most of the time English subtitles are terrible. But it doesn't have to be that way. With this wave of new releases from companies like Eureka Films and 88 Films, we suddenly got a slew of new subtitles that can sometimes completely recontextualize the movie experience. Recently, 88 Films put out Erotic Ghost Story in a big deluxe box set, and I was blown away that they included a TV special from around the time of Erotic's release that was English subtitled. When I tweeted about it, I learned that Dylan Chung, the person who had subtitled the main feature as well was the person who had suggested including that little special as an extra. And looking into Dylan Chung's work, I learned that he had done a bunch of subtitles for movies that had been coming out and was really thoughtful in the way that he approached it, including taking on the heroic task of subtitling correctly a Stephen Chow film with Forbidden City Cop. I had the pleasure of talking to Dylan about how he got into subtitling, how he got into his love for Hong Kong cinema, and what his general practice of going and doing something that seems simple on the surface, but is actually incredibly complicated. So please enjoy this conversation with Dylan Chung. I would love to know, how did you get subtitling movies? Specifically, <laughs> Hong Kong movies. Okay, so with the all the current Hong Kong releases coming out in especially like uh, over in the UK with Region B, there was basically someone who, I won't say his name because he's kind of a private guy, but there's someone who's basically kind of um, has a hand in all of them. Really? Like there's one the person scene. that does everything. He's kind of like a middleman who manages to find like the best people to do everything. It took me ages to learn his actual name. So Wow, um, it's like a mission if you want to know who does a subtitle. Yeah, it's like, like you have to earn his trust and then you learn his name kind of thing. Um, Is there like a subtitle ring of like cliques and like, oh, you're not on the... Uh, uh, elite level to be able to do this no, like, no, around no. the world basically it's just like this massive people like there's just mm -hmm. all these random people who he's got connections with or he knows and it's just all these people are helpful in some way you know you kind of get recruited so to speak <laughs> you get a knock yeah, on the door it's like we're ready for the hong yeah. kong subtitling initiative i probably got in because probably on a farm or somewhere i probably made a post about subtitles being shit mm -hmm. to be honest and i probably backed it up with something. And then that's, I think that's how we first met. He's involved with a lot of these. Um, he knows a lot of people and then people kind of, you know, if you kind of get to know him, he brings you in and yeah. So that's how it happened specifically. I've never heard of this mysterious figure now. Now my uh, attention is peaked. If you look in all the special thanks, mm -hmm. he's got a credit in all of them and it's under his like online handle. So so has he been around since like the Hong Kong Legends days of, you know, DVD I'm not production? Sure. I don't okay. actually know, but he seems to have, um, well, he seems to know everyone. So he's definitely been around. And that's uh, why I, I don't want like, to say I'm not meant to say. So I'm just going to say there's this guy. He kind of knows everyone. Everyone gets roped in to do the things they're good at. That's kind of how it works. And before that, had you done any subtitling? Like what career path were you going down? Well, I had done um, a bit of sort of, um, so locally there's been a few uh, kind of productions I've worked on, mm -hmm. just independent films and short films, where on the off chance where someone, cause someone knows I speak Cantonese fluently. And they're like, we've got a character who speaks Cantonese. And I always get this, but it's like, oh, the guy we've got to do like the language consulting. Yeah, it doesn't seem a bit right. And there's been a few times when I've been called in and kind of um, essentially done kind of making sure that the dialogue sounds right. Hong Kong films are infamous for having, you know, really mangled English subtitles because for people that don't know, 
I believe it was a law, right? That films had to be subtitled if they were screened theatrically during British rule. It's one of those kind of apocryphal stories where mm. no one really knows the truth. Okay. But the common, the common myth is that, well, I shouldn't say myth. It's the apocryphal version is that um, due to censorship, basically the colonial government made all the films, uh, had to have dual subtitles on all the films. So that way kind of, you know, the people in charge knew what they were supposedly saying in films. That's where the story came about. There was even like a South China Morning Post article about it where they kind of call it into question whether or not that's true. Like mm -hmm. no one really knows if there was an actual official government kind of thing to say you have to subtitle all your movies. One of the most likely reasons I think is that the companies just realized, well, we could make more money this way. Yes. I really think that is probably one of the reasons. I mean, but that's the thing. There's, I feel like there's all this kind of um, colonial censorship stuff that we still don't really know about, whether or not something was done officially or if something was done kind of, you know, like not so much of black ops, but something was done like secretly or without doing it officially, like it wasn't put on paper. Because I've been fascinated of the research I've done to like Taiwanese cinema, which mm. they were rarely English subtitled. And because yeah. of that, a lot of those films have completely disappeared. So, because you brought up uh, Taiwanese films, I'm really kind of, because um, you probably know more about it than I do, but it's just, it seems that there's so much of them, like they have such a really, like a fairly robust kind of um, film preservation over there. But then like all the time, you'll see some random, like really cool kind of monster movie poster or some fantasy movie. Nobody knows what the hell it yeah. is. And then you even see it in kind of Chinese language forums and on Chinese language social media where someone will post this random Taiwanese poster. It's like, someone please tell me about this movie i have no idea what this movie is and it's just like such a shame there's someone ever since i announced thrilling bloody sword who yep. constantly sends me messages on facebook being like the taiwanese film archive has this film it only cost fourteen thousand dollars to scan i was like i'm sorry man like i can't afford it they were really good with kind of releasing you know like their classy movies at one point like mm -hmm. all the new wave stuff like you you got all of those blu-rays of you know like the host house ends and yeah but that. you never get any of the genre stuff but you never like, get all the other stuff they're like all the bruce ploitation stuff just rotting away got lost forever i'm just really curious about all the fantasy stuff because there's mm -hmm. so much of it you always see them or even like the you know, like the anime knockoffs, like the unofficial adaptations of, you know, because the, there's like a Dragon Ball live action movie and like a Fist of the North Star live action movie. And they're all Taiwanese, but it's like, and you can only get them on like crappy 240p or whatever on YouTube. And there's no other version available. You know, I'd have to say to anyone who's like, oh, someone could find it. They're probably long gone. <laughs> like no one has a print <laughs> of it. But then again, someone had to print a thrilling bloody sword. They were just, you know, just sitting in their it's archives. Just sitting somewhere uncatalogued. In the history of subtitles, as far as you know, I read somewhere that sometimes the companies would get subtitles done for the films yeah. theatrically when they were released. And those subtitles were like locked in and they would never make any changes. With the stuff that's getting licensed now, it's probably just no one's bothered. Like mm -hmm. I really think of a lot of this stuff, no one's really bothered. I haven't actually heard anything about them being, you know, it's really hard to get changes specifically. Mm -hmm. I assume there's some people who probably have a certain control over the subtitles. Like if they kind of still own their films, like, you know, someone like Wong Kar Wai, I'm pretty sure he's got, at least his company has a very specific control over how the subtitles come out. They sound a certain way, like on the recent, like on the Criterion box set. And I caught them when they were showing here at the art gallery. They sound a very certain way, which I think is how they want them. And there's mm -hmm. certain things which aren't actually subtitled either. There's things which are very blatantly skipped, like swear words. Uh, oh, and really? And wow. Like so I feel like that depending on who you are in the company, there might be... Sometimes there's just people, it's like, well, here are our official versions of the subtitles. Don't touch them. This is this is the one you have to use. Now, when did your love for Hong Kong cinema begin? When did it become an obsession for you? 
So like Hong Kong movies is just something I've always watched. Mm -hmm. Like it's, so I grew up in Australia, but I've always spoken Cantonese at home. Like it's never been like a big deal. Like this whole, like Hong Kong culture has never been this thing that was like, oh yeah, it's kind of lame. I'm not going to keep up with it sort of thing. But like, it's always just been a part of just my life. I wouldn't say I got really into it until probably kind of the 2000s. Mm -hmm. And that was when um, stuff like Infernal Affairs was coming out. I'm pretty sure that was the first Hong Kong movie I actually got to see at the cinema. And I remember at the time there was all this talk, you know, that was during that big lull of when nothing was coming out. But like, I would say it was at that point where, I don't know, I feel like it happens to everyone. When you start watching a lot of movies, even if you're not doing it on purpose, when you start reading the credits, it's like, oh, hey, it's these like it's these same names I always see from movies I really like. You're like, and of I course, think, now I have to see all the Wong Jing Yeah, movies. and it's like, oh, so this guy made this as well. And it was like, yeah. and with Hong Kong movies, I think it's especially kind of surprising because, you know, the one director or the one writer, like, they'll make all sorts of things. Like, they really, you know, you know, auto theory be damned. Like, it's like you'll have the one guy just make whatever. And it's Oh, just, God, I hope you didn't go down a path of wanting to watch all the films that Andrew Lau directed. Because <laughs> you're like, ah, Wesley's Mysterious Files. This has got to be good, Oh, right? God. I remember being so excited for that movie because it was mm. like, oh, wow, this big budget kind of science fiction hong kong movie it's like oh no it's so it's bad really it's really bad i mean andrew lau i remember reading an interview with someone that worked with him and they said that he was just a guy who was like all right let's just go do it doesn't matter let's just go do it as quickly as possible and then we'll move on to the next thing i think andrew lau is a very good cinematographer like i think his movies always look really good and he probably is just like a very good sort of, you know, gun for hire kind of director. Like, I don't think I'm an Andrew Lau completist, but just <laughs> thinking, of, thinking of the movies he's done, it's sort of like, yeah, there's not really anything to them, which I think, oh yeah, that's an Andrew Lau movie. They're all really slick. I'll give him that. Yeah, His and movies... he did kind of start a bunch of trends because he directed the early Young and Dangerous films, didn't he? Yeah, he did all the Young and Dangerous And he films. did the CGI, like, Storm Rider uh, movie as yes, well. He did Storm Riders and uh, Man Called Hero. And then he I've also did been... The Duel, which was part of that, like, CGI trilogy. Oh, People yeah. listening to this are like, what are they talking about? It's <laughs> like, you got to be deep in that Hong Kong cinema. Knowledge. The Duel <laughs> is such a strange movie as well because it's also kind of a sequel to Forbidden City Cop. The character that um, Nick Chung plays in it is also one of the Forbidden City Cops. Oh. I can't remember if he's also, like, if he has the same, like, number. And there's a few of them. Like, he, like there's another one. There's, like, a Louis Ku starring one, like, later on, made specifically kind of for a mainland Chinese market. And that one, again, was, you know, this is essentially another Forbidden City Cop sequel, spinoff, whatever. So when you got that deal with the mysterious figure who <laughs> gives out those subtitling jobs, yeah. was there a particular like film or even series of films that you really wanted to work on that you thought I could bring, you know, something that these subtitling jobs have never had? All of that early lot of films, it was all that, all those Jackie Chan movies. I really wanted to do Operation Condor because that is my all time favorite Jackie Chan movie. Like, I don't care what anyone says. It's better than Armor of God. And that's going to lose me followers. And really? Followers. I don't think many people would argue that with you. Armor no, of God is a film Armor that... Armor of God is so beloved and I'm and not... Armor of God has like a great ending, but like leading up to that, it's pretty, you know, shaky. I watched that a lot as a kid. Mm -hmm. And then when I revisited as a much older man, it was like, I don't know what I saw in this. <laughs> There's a lot of filler in that movie. But to be fair, I think a lot of... Even the great Jackie Chan movies have a lot of filler. I mean, but that's not to be fair. That's just you have eyes and you've seen the film. <laughs> it's, all, it's all the stuff around it is really great. It's like, yeah. and you always see him hurt himself in the most spectacular way. I mean, but, Armor um, of God, he also got injured early on, which I think hurt the yeah. rest of the movie. And then the climax had to be different. Yeah, that, that's why they even have to cut away from the music in the end credits when they show you the NG shot of him just lying, and <laughs> lying in his own blood. Yeah, because there was a lot of Jackie Chan movies
movies coming out. And I just personally really wanted to do Operation Condor because at the time, because I wasn't in on this right away, Diddy Hunter had already come out mm-hmm. from Eureka. And I watched that because I normally don't watch it with the English subtitles. Uh, why would you? <laughs> and I watched that with the English subtitles just to see, because I remember they made like, it was like a really big deal. It was like, oh, and they even subbed, um, well, you know, the song in the middle. Was yeah. it the Gala Gala happy, uh, happy song in the middle? Mm-hmm. And so I kind of watched it with the English subtitles and I'm like, this is really stilted for a very kind of light movie. That was kind of the main thing I had sort of realized is that a lot of the times, whoever's writing the subtitles, like Cantonese, but Hong Kong Cantonese especially, is very colloquial. It's like, it's really kind of very casual. And every, and a lot of times I've like, from what I've seen from the English subtitles, it's like, yeah, these people don't sound like how people talk. Cantonese is kind of, that is like the epitome of sort of, you know, really casual language is like Hong Kong Cantonese. But how does that casualness translate to the English equivalent? I think the hardest thing is that one thing is that because Cantonese is full of slang, it's always trying to find the right word because you don't want to you don't want to lay it on thick. If you do it too much, I think because in because in, in English we don't really it's not at that same level of constant slang or use of idioms and that. Mm-hmm. But in Cantonese it is, and in Chinese in general, it's just there's a lot of slang. There's a lot of idioms. For me at least, it's I want to give the English language audience as close to the same experience as if you understood the language. That is my kind of philosophy behind doing the translations. It's like this is what and which is what I've always thought was kind of missing. That's why you get a lot of people when they're watching kind of the current batch of movies now with the new subtitles and they're like, oh, I I didn't know that this part was supposed to be funny or I didn't know that, you know, someone speaks that way or this is really serious. Like, I think that's kind of what I wanted to really rectify was like, because it's really important how someone speaks and then how you put that when you're reading it. Do you think of any particular example of a sentence that you would translate into English or struggling with it to get sense out of it? I think it's usually idioms. So uh, I can give you a good example with uh, Magnificent Butcher. I forgot who in it. Someone speaks almost exclusively in idioms, but a lot of them are quite obscure and they actually have English language equivalents. And I think one of them was something like, it was something about the lion's den. I actually ended up using it because I couldn't think of a better version. It was um to something the lion in the lion's den. I can't remember, but I had personally never heard of that expression before, but it was an English expression. And I even looked it up and I was like, is that really a thing? Is that really something people say? And it was like, oh, apparently it is. And it's like, well, I guess that's what it is because the Chinese version even makes less sense if I translated it directly. And that's also another thing, like with idioms, if I can, I try to translate them directly because I still think even if you don't have that in English, we don't have that in English, you can still make sense of it. And it gives it that kind of, it adds that extra flavor to it. But with this particular one, like the actual Chinese is something like to break ground on a person's head. Even I don't really get what that means. And so I remember looking it up. It's like, oh, yeah. Oh, it's to be at the lion in his den, which is, again, I have never heard of this expression, but it's an actual English expression. So that's (laughs) probably the one I'll always remember because it was like, I have no idea what this means in Chinese or in English. And what are some of the like mistakes you see people make when they do subtitling Cantonese to English? I can't really think of any specific mistakes, but I do know that people skirt over certain details Mm. when there's certain like kind of maybe cultural or historical references they tend to just kind of skip ahead or they jump over that so like you don't really miss anything but I've noticed it's more of an absence of things which aren't translated more than things which are translated incorrectly if there is anything that is translated incorrectly I think this is one of those compromise things it's swearing 
Cantonese swearing is, it's a whole thing unto itself. It's extremely colorful and there's already so many words for the one thing and they can be verbs as much as they can be adjectives. And so I think just sometimes, yeah, with, with swearing, it's- Yeah, how do you translate that? Because like, it doesn't have like an equivalent in English. Exactly, you can't. Like there's just no real way of doing it. And you're always kind of like, well, I guess you want to match the tone and the level of severity. But that would be the one thing which I say, yeah, I never feel like the swearing is right. I always think of French Canadian swearing is tabarnak, calius, esti. You know what those are? Those are just items in the church. That's all it is. So it's it's like no equivalent in English. So polite. (laughs) Yeah, it's like fuck. Because you hear somebody like, will mix them together as well. It'll be like, uh, esti tabarnak. All that means is like, those objects in the church, but they're just together. So it's like, how do I translate I this? I guess fuck. Like that's what French all fans Canadian? of do. Are those exclusively French Canadian? I, I think it's exclusively French Canadian. Like that's if you not went like, to France and and they wouldn't know things, what that means. Like, yeah. they have no idea what you're saying. Well, that, yeah, that's the thing. It's like, yeah, there's lots of people who speak Cantonese in mainland China. You go to the mm-hmm. south of China, in you know Guangdong, that's what they speak. But then again, it's like there's that massive difference of once someone opens their mouth, you know where what kind of Cantonese they're speaking. And it's like that similar thing with like, you know, that French Canadian French just now. It's like, that sounds French to me. But obviously, if you go to France, they have got no idea what you're talking about. So you get in, you get your first job subtitling. Uh, what movies did you work on from the get-go? So the very first one I actually did, but wasn't the first one to come out, was Operation Condor. That was my test. So when that actually came out, it was good because I had time to go back and sort of, you know, fix things and kind of learn from things I'd done before. I think the first thing that made it onto a disc was I did the theme songs for the Once Upon a Time in China movie. Because for some reason, the person who actually did the subtitles for those didn't translate any of the songs. And there was also, there's like the blind man in the second movie who has like the bit in the middle with the montage. And I did that song as well, which I'm pretty sure was the first time anyone had actually translated it. And that was already really hard because that is very specific kind of opera language. Yeah, so that was probably the first thing I did that made it onto a disc. And then I think it was probably Last Hurrah for Chivalry, probably the first full length one. Now, do Wuxia films present a different challenge than like more modern day films when it comes to doing the subtitles? Yes. Again, it comes to idioms again, Mm -hmm. um, because people speak a very certain, like speak a certain way in Wuxia films. Okay, here's the thing. So... With a lot of Hong Kong movies, even really serious period films, the main characters tend to speak normally. And it's kind of the villains or kind of side characters around them tend to speak a bit more, like with more flowery language. So, so like, especially like with, a British accent or literally the verbiage that they use? No, it's again, it's like maybe those characters which only speak in like re- really kind of archaic idioms. Mm-hmm. Similar thing again. While the main characters just sounds like a normal person. <laughs> yeah, like, hey, so what's up? Let's go. <laughs> Especially like if you go to like those Jackie Chan movies like Dragon Lord and Young Master and all that, like all of those kind of very like all of those kind of young characters all speak very normally, but all the masters and all of like the bad guys, of course, you know, just sound kind of very proper and it's not not quite the same. That's one of the big things with Wuxia films that are annoying. The other thing is surprisingly, what to do with names? The problem with names is that, oh God, I, I had this conversation with, because um, I did some very minor work on the Arrow Shaw Brothers box set and I was talking to um James Flower who was the producer on it and this was something that came up and it was actually one of the things they had like kind of had lots of discussion about as well was names it was like how do you render people's names in English like if it's set in like you know, a modern day film set in Hong Kong you just write everyone's names as you would see them normally like in Cantonese like kind of how you'd normally write Cantonese names in English but then with period films, it's like, well, they might be speaking Cantonese, but they're not really like to have kind of modern sounding Cantonese names, at least in my opinion, 
is strange. So if you actually look at something like Bride of White Hair, even the original English subtitles for that, they use a kind of archaic way of writing Chinese names into English, mm-hmm. which is the style you normally see uh, names written in English in the credits to Shaw Brothers movie. And it's how a lot of Taiwanese people write their names. So it's a system called Wade Giles, which is more or less kind of, you know, isn't, get, isn't used anymore except for in Taiwan. And so when it comes to a period movie, it becomes a case of, well, do I write it in that style or do I write it in like how modern Mandarin will have it? Because it gives it that kind of period archaic kind of thing. And it opens up a whole thing of like, okay, if something's like a historical term or like something comes from mythology, do I write it how you would find it today? So if I looked up, looked up like a phrase or like a historical emperor or like a period in like an encyclopedia or just online, do I write it in the way it's written today, which is usually in pinyin, which is what they use in mainland China? Mm-hmm. Or do I go back and use that old Wei Giles Taiwanese style? Because that's technically the accurate, you know, kind of period version of it. So that's actually one of, <laughs> these are kind of these seemingly kind of throwaway things that just end up taking so much time. It's just like, And where yeah. do you come uh, down on it? Like the decision that you say, I think in my personal opinion, this is the way that I would want to put it out there. <laughs> I think I change my mind of every movie. <laughs> While everyone watching like know. me is like, uh-huh, yeah, I accept that. There's, there's no right way of doing it. There just is no right way of doing it. And there's just been a few times where it's like, I've changed my, line, my mind halfway, but it's too late. I'm just going to stick with this and just see how it goes. Now, you also worked on Forbidden City Cop, a Stephen Chow mm-hmm. movie. Those are infamous for being like, ah, English language audiences, they can get the physical gags. That's pretty much it because he's speaking a very specific Cantonese kind of way that, you know, the way the words sound, that's where the jokes come from. Like when we give, when you were given this job, were you like, I'm up for the challenge? Yeah, no, when I knew they got a Stephen Chow, I was like, no, I, I, a bit of me, and it sounds like, you know, I don't want to say I've got a big head, but it's like, I don't trust anyone else to do this. It's like, I, I got to be the one to do it. I've been thinking about this all my life, in a way. <laughs> like, how does this stuff, even inadvertently, even if I had no kind of, you know, designs to like translate movies, it was like, God, what would that be in English? And that actually comes up a lot sometimes when I'm just talking, like sometimes I'm talking to my nieces, for example, and they kind of like speak sort of Cantonese to mm-hmm. me, kind of English Cantonese. And sometimes it's just like, when I have to explain something to them, it's like, I don't know how to explain it in English. And that's kind of, and so it's like, this is something that's just part of my day-to-day life, like thinking about things like that. And with Forbidden City Cop, it was like, no, this will be a lot of fun to see if a movie like that, I could make it work for, you know, an English language audience. Because there's always that idea of like, oh, it'll just never work. Like stuff is lost in translation. And I accept that. Like that is, that's just anything in translation. It's always going to, there's always, it's going to be things that don't come through. But with Forbidden City Cop, it was like, no, I think I can make this work or at least as much as possible. Yeah. And so going in, did you find it a challenge of, you know, like words sounding like other words? How do you translate that in subtitles? I'm really pedantic with stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So a lot of, um, so if, for example, if someone has like said something that rhymes, I always try to make a rhyme in English as well. <laughs> this is the kind of stuff that takes me forever. And I'll just be, you know, for a week, I'll be in the shower. I'll you're be like you a know, maistro. Like, lying you're, there you're in bed, just, just thinking about epic. it in my head. It's like, how does this rhyme in English? So stuff like that, I'm really pedantic about. It's like, no, I've got to try at least to make it. Because it's a rhythm, because there's a lot of kind of jokes, which are like, it's sort of like Victorian nonsense rhymes. Mm. They're not, re- there's nothing really funny about them other than they're just, you know, kind of, you know, silly. And so if you just kind of translate something directly, it's like, oh, there's nothing there. But at least if you make it, if you keep the rhyme or if you keep that rhythm, at least people go, oh, I get it. There's, it's supposed to be sing-songy or there's like a, there's something to it. And another thing is um, 
you know, I put my foot down on this. I don't like seeing notes in subtitles. Oh, I was going to say that, like, you know, Stephen Chow film, like, a, I, we should get, like, half a text. This is a parody of a commercial that aired in blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I'm, um, I'm really against seeing notes in subtitles because I think if you're watching something subtitled, you're already disconnected from it in a certain way. Mm-hmm. If you've got notes in there, that pulls you out even more. I feel like that's just not great for an audience. Mm-hmm. So I always avoid having notes when I can. I think I've gotten away with it so far. I used one note in Last Hurrah for Chivalry. And this is something I always think about still. It's like, could I actually do that bit without having the note in? And it's when they introduce each, uh, they introduce themselves to each other. And one of them, their name actually means green clothes. And so that was the one time I put a note in because I think I was under the gun. I was, you know, was under, under the call, you know, and I just put it in. But yeah, otherwise I'm really like, yeah, no, no notes. Got to get as close as possible to like the pun that's there. I don't think there's that many in Forbidden City Cop, to be honest. Uh-huh. They're probably more references to things. And so when it's something like that, I feel like I have to find something that tonally makes it amusing in a similar way. So for example, with that one, something that I spent ages on is the name of the brothel. So the name of the brothel, and it's actually a really, really complex joke. It's not just simply that the name of the brothel is funny. It's like the name of the brothel is based on the name of the charitable organization run by uh, the Miss Hong Kong beauty pageant. Okay. Once you've, once you've been in Miss Hong Kong, you kind of become a part of this kind of alumni charitable organization. And the name of that organization translates to something roughly like, um, you know, an elegant gathering of smart and intelligent women. So that's what the name of that organization is. And the brothel in Forbidden City Cop is based off of that, but it's been reversed where it's basically a gathering of, you know, intelligent men to discuss literature and art. Like that's Mm -hmm. kind of the implication. And I think I ended up going with something like Literati's Colloquy or something really just kind of, it's so kind of flowery and decadent that it's silly. Mm -hmm. Because there's no way, of course, there's no way for me to really- like, you know, give that information to the viewer. Give that information out. And so this is when it comes down to, okay, they'll never get the reference unless there's a footnote. So what do you do then? Well, obviously you just have to make it, at least try and make it funny still. Because I feel Mm -hmm. like that still is funny because it's just kind of, oh God, it's it's so absurd that the idea of brothel has such like, a kind of literary name. I should say that there's an audio commentary on the 88 films disc to any listener to this. It's like, I wish I could get the references by Frank Jang. And he actually lets you know the references like, oh, this is this actor. This is a reference to this. So you do have that kind of like context there. It's just, I think with, with the audio commentaries, it's like, I think that's when you become a fan of the movie or you want to learn more. Those are the kinds of people, or, you know, people who are just, you know, kind of movie fiends are the people who listen to commentaries. Even for a lot of people who buy these movies, I'm, I'm really curious what the ratio is in terms of people who listen to them. Because some those commentaries, some of those commentaries are really good. But I'm just wondering how many actually, because like with something like Story of Ricky, there's like four or five on there. I do listen to a lot. And what I do is I just rip them to an MP3, throw them on my phone. Oh, so I just listen like to them the without watching audible. the movie. Oh yeah, that works. So it turns into like a podcast. It's just another podcast for me to listen to. Oh yeah, podcast. Yeah, no, that actually works. That's a pretty good idea. So like if I threw something at you and 88 Films was like, hey, we're releasing Fist of Fury 1991. Then would you be like, oh my God, how am I going to subtitle this? Because isn't Stephen Chow like, you know, early on when he was doing like All for the Winner, like the Mm. joke was that he was kind of like a country bumpkin, right? Let's take a Stephen Chow tangent for a moment because I really want to talk about Stephen Chow. So Stephen Chow actually, 
And this is something I don't know if they actually talk about in the commentaries for Forbidden City Cop, but I feel like it's something they should have touched on. Like when that movie came out, his career is already slowing down. So that's like just in context of where that movie sits in his filmography. It's like at that point, he's already slowed down a lot and he's making that transition to more being behind the camera rather than being in front of it, which is something very unique about Forbidden City Cop is that that is one of the few kind of Stephen Chow movies where He's not in every scene. Most Stephen Chow movies, especially at the height of his powers, it's really hard to find a scene where he's not in it because he's the he's the moneymaker. Everyone's just going to go see Stephen Chow. You can't have a scene where Stephen Chow isn't in it. But so much of that movie, especially near the beginning, he's not really in a lot of it. So you can already see there's like a bit of a shift into how he sees himself mm-hmm. or what he wants to do. But he kind of starts off, um, so his kind of initial screen persona, and this is the one that makes him really famous. Have you seen Love on Delivery? I have. Love Love on Delivery. That's kind of what his initial kind of screen persona is, and the one that everyone still really loves. He's kind of like a slacker. He's like this slacker. He's kind of a bit smarmy. He's a bit of an underdog. And that's what he actually starts off as. Like, I think that's his initial kind of persona. But then he does All for the Winner, and that's actually, so he's not actually famous before All for the Winner. It takes him ages to actually become famous. Like he languishes on TV. Yeah, because he does like a Donnie Yen TV movie. He's in Just Heroes, the John Woo film. Because he was friends with Tony Leung and they joined TV together. And like Tony Leung gets famous really quickly. But mm-hmm. Tony Leung, as we know, he's very good looking and a very good actor. So that that kind of is like, yeah. And Stephen Chow is like, Stephen Chow isn't not good looking. He's just an ordinary looking guy. Mm-hmm. And at the start, he wasn't necessarily doing comedy. He does two TV shows which kind of make him popular, but not famous. So he does one called The Final Combat and The Justice of Life. And you can see a lot- The Final Combat's directed by the guy who directed Love on Delivery, right? Yes. Okay. Both of them are. And both of those TV shows, you can actually see a lot of gags he ends up reusing in his kind of early movies. Mm -hmm. And so if you're a big fan of Stephen Chow, they're worth seeking out because you can kind of see, this is where Stephen Chow really begins, even if he's not Stephen Chow yet. It's just- you can see him already kind of perfecting that kind of comedy. And so he starts off as kind of this smarmy slacker kid. Then he does All for the Winner and just blows up. Now in All for the Winner, is he still a swarmy slacker? No, he kind of plays that country bumpkin. Yeah. Kind of completely, it's a bit of a change. And he kind of plays that character and he blows up. The movies he does after that, he goes back to that kind of slacker persona. Mm-hmm. He goes back to that until he does Love on Delivery, mm-hmm. which is kind of like his okay, you love this particular version of me so much, I will give you the ultimate version of this Stephen Chow. Because after he does Love on Delivery, he doesn't really play that character anymore. It's a complete shift. And then that's when he starts making, I would say, probably movies that he is personally invested in. He's not making movies for other people. He starts making movies kind of for himself. And that's when you get like From Beijing with Love and even Forbidden City Cop, all that comes after that. Mm-hmm. where he's kind of, I've given you everything you want from this initial version of me that you all love. You're not getting any more. He only does it a few times to like cash in a paycheck. But other than that, it's like, nope, Stephen Chow is no longer that Stephen Chow anymore. Yeah, because he does Tricky Master and he shows up like in the first yeah. scene. You're like, I can't wait for yeah. more Stephen Chow. Nope. Like, like Tricky Brains is one of the ones he did after All for the Winner. Mm-hmm. And he's already kind of going back to that kind of, like he's kind of smarmy in that. He's not so much a slacker in that, but he's kind of, he goes back to that sort of smarmy, kind of a bit of a smart ass kind of character. Do you think you'd have a big challenge if you had to tackle any of those Stephen Chow films? If 88 films- Well, like you that? brought up Fist of Fury 1991. Yeah. And I can already think of a scene in that, which I kind of just now is, like, I have no idea how that's going to work. And that's when um 
they're in like the Yamcha restaurant and they're pushing little carts around him and Ken, uh, I think it's him and Kenny B and they're pushing the carts around and they make all sorts of jokes. They make these kind of now in hindsight, very tasteless jokes about the Gulf War. <laughs> I think I think they're pushing the trucks around going, oh, we're going to bomb you. And they're all references to the Gulf War. It's kind of like watching it now, it's like, yeah, that's kind of really bad. But there's a lot of wordplay in that scene, just thinking about it, where it's like, yeah, I don't even know where to start. With Tastelessness like in a Stephen Chow film? No you know, way. Let me put tricky brains on and take this big glass of water. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if a company could put there's like that whole AIDS run in tricky brains where he oh, pretends yeah. to have AIDS. That's yeah. It's like this stuff hasn't aged bad, has, has aged very, very badly. Yeah. That comes up a lot in kind of especially with a lot of the films doing like we've done now, where like kind of the use of certain slurs and certain jokes, which mm-hmm. tend to pop up. And even now when I'm doing them, it's like well, that's what they're saying. I've got to put it in. And I'm always like, I wonder how anyone who's not familiar with these movies watching them will feel <laughs> like seeing that. I always think of Once a Thief, the John Woo film. At mm. one point, uh, Chang Fat has a deck of cards and he's like, you have so many aces, you must have AIDS. And then he throws it back at the guy. <laughs> and I was like, I wonder, that must be a literal translation because what else could it be? What else could it be? It probably is. You've worked on like Shaw Brothers movies. We mentioned Stephen Chow, Jackie Chan. Is there anything mm-hmm. else that you'd like to tackle or make kind of like the definitive version of as a subtitler? Well, a really interesting thing was of all the movies I think I've done the most work on is probably Erotic Ghost Story. <laughs> I'm not a prude, but it's like, I, I don't love that movie, but it's just Does kind of- Does anybody love erotic ghost story? I don't know. I don't think like, so. All of alumni choice movies, when you think about them, are just kind of bad. It's oh, just, how dare you? Seven's Curse, Story of Ricky, yeah. uh, Men from the Gutter. That's a great movie. Men, Men from the Gutter is really good. Yeah. And the one where um, Chin Si Ho fights a kangaroo, which I always forget the name of. Oh, it's like, isn't it like, oh no, I'm thinking of the Chu Yang Ping film, Requisent. It's something no, like that. Something I once like that. reached out to that director. He's on Twitter and asked oh, really? him, hey, could I interview you? And he said, thank you, but no, thank you. <laughs> yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. I'm surprised. Because like he, um, the Robot Tricks director, what's his name? Jamie Look. Mm-hmm. He's done a few, like he did a like a long sit down interview for the Robot Tricks Blu-ray. Mm-hmm. And I think he's kind of popped up on certain sort of like podcasty shows as well. And I'm always like, where do people find, like, how do you find these people? It's like, they haven't worked in decades. It's like, I feel you- like Mike Leader probably knows all of them, that he knows someone who knows someone who then just knows the person. Or do you just go on Facebook and then like, you know, push your, because of certain people I have on Facebook, I do sometimes see famous people in my recommendations. And I'm always like, oh, I wonder if they'll accept my friend request if I click <laughs> add friend. <laughs> like I've seen, I, I see, I've seen like Bridget Lynn and Nansun Shi on my on my Facebook recommendations before. But it's not like, is it actually them? It is actually them. Okay. And I'm always like, hmm, I wonder if I just clicked <laughs> clicked add friend, will they just block me straight and away? And she's like, wow, no one's actually ever asked me. Yeah, they're too but famous. Yeah. They're too famous. Yeah, but yeah, the one I did the most work on was Erotic Ghost Story. Because at the time I was just thinking, it'd be great if like, you know, like the schlock would get the same kind of treatment. Mm-hmm. And so when that came up, I was like, I don't really like this movie, but I just like to do it as like, It'd be great for this to, you know, just treat it as a regular movie. We'll subtitle, we'll do it properly. A part of me wants to do more stuff like that, which I feel like the Jackie Chan stuff, for example, that'll be released until the end of time. Those will forever come out, you know, once we're on UHD or whatever. But, you know, something like 
probably story of Ricky Mike, but yeah, something like Seventh Curse or something like Erotic Ghost Story. Who really knows, you know, how many more iterations of physical media they're going to get? Probably zero. <laughs> I mean, yeah, Seventh Curse is still languishing on DVD that came out. I think Ricky O might. That's because yeah, that's, that's kind of the main value at this point as well. Mm. But like, yeah, like Erotic Ghost Story, no one's really going to go back and go, we got to release a better version of this. And so that was just the case of like, oh, this came up and it was like, yeah, you know what? I'll do it. I'll do like a really, I'll do like a proper, completely no-nonsense job with this, which it probably wouldn't otherwise get. So that's part of what I'm interested in doing now. I know that wouldn't otherwise get the same treatment. I recently saw on Twitter, someone posted a thread of like comparing the Eureka translation to the Criterion one of Once Upon a Time in China. And they're radically different in the way they convey Hmm. information and what they skip over. And you pointed out, that Criterion has more of a just get to the facts kind of way to translate. Yeah. I don't know if it's like purely kind of American subtitling because I know things have come out before, like with the Blu-rays that BFI put out in the UK, people have pointed sometimes the language in that is very like explicitly British English, which I tend to use just because, because when I'm doing region B discs, then they're coming out from, you know, companies in the UK. It's good that I can use British English because it's a bit more colorful. And I was actually talking to someone on Twitter about this the other day where it's like proper kind of American English is a bit sort of conservative. Like it's just, it's very to the point with, at least with British English, there's kind of a bigger wealth of kind of idioms or phrases, or even like the word bloody is sort of, I don't know what I'd do if I couldn't use that word. It's a great like, word. Yeah. There's, there's no other word. Like if I, if I had to do like a purely American English version of a film, it's like, I don't know what to put in there. Like, the, like what, what would I replace with bloody, for example? So when I was uh, doing the new translation for Bride of White Hair, so normally I don't actually look at the previous English subtitles. So whenever I do anything, it's from scratch and I'm doing everything by ear. So I'm not even, so that's another thing as well. A lot of, especially older subtitle sets tended to be someone grabbed the Chinese subtitles and just translated that into English. Oof. That's why there's a lot of discrepancies. But I always, I'm always doing everything from scratch. On like the really older movies with really bad audio, I'm sometimes I have to listen to the same scene over and over again just to kind of like, I think that's what he said. I guess mm. that's what he said. And those are like the few times I actually look at the Chinese subtitles to see what they've put. And sometimes it's just like, yeah, that's there's no way they said that. There's, it's not even <laughs> They close. just took a guess. With Bride of White Hair, there wasn't anything wrong with the translation, but it was everyone sounds the same. Because one of the big things of that movie, there's a lot of kind of, I guess, subtext on sort of class and hierarchy and even mm-hmm. like race or ethnicity rather. So kind of like the idea that like the, the Wu-Tang Clan are kind of, they, they're sort of very high and mighty and they tend to, they speak very flowery as well. Like, especially, um, you know, like all of like those kind of aged masters in that movie, they all speak a very certain way. And then the younger characters, again, something we kind of touched on, like Leslie Chung and that all speak kind of normally but all of like, you know, their mentors and their teachers are kind of, you know, they they're, they speak in this very kind of rigid kind of way. But yeah, there's, there was stuff like that. And it was like, well, I guess if you make it more flowery or more similar to the tone, it becomes harder to read. And I get that. But then sometimes I feel like with a movie like Bride of White Hair, where that stuff is really important, or at least I feel, and that's probably not something that most people who've watched it before would probably get if they're watching it subtitled that's something you kind of want to put back in and so there's kind of you get those two kind of schools of subtitling where it's like well do you try to get it close to what they're saying but then sacrifice readability in the mm. process or do you just make it as concise as possible so that the audience you know it's like they can watch and they can read at the same time with not that with not that many problems 
And I think with Criterion subtitles, they tend to go for that just as a, it's a safer kind of marketing thing as well. Cause you don't want anyone to kind of go, I have no idea what anyone was saying. <laughs> or it's like too much text on screen. Yeah, too much text on screen. But that being said, like, even if, um, cause we're now really strict with kind of, you know, like, you know, uh, characters per second, all that mm -hmm. kind of stuff, which is really, really careful with stuff like that now. But even then, You'll still get people saying, like, even if we're using like Netflix's standards or whatever, you'll still get people saying, yeah, I couldn't keep up. So in the end, it is kind of a subjective thing. It really does depend on the individual person. Mm -hmm. But I think with a lot of American subtitles and what Criterion do, it's really more about the widest range of audience can read this and it's fine. And so in, in effect, you do tend to lose lots of tone. So I also want to talk about the fact that you run an amazing Instagram account that <laughs> I'm not going to try to say the actual title because I will uh, butcher it. What is it actually called? It's called Yatam Hey. Yeah. And it's basically like your roundup of whatever Hong Kong news you want to talk about. And you also subtitle videos and stuff like that. How did that start? Again, it's all, it's all going back to erotic ghost story, which is something I never thought <laughs> I'd say. So when that release came out, I initially was under the impression it it's going to be a very bare bones release. And eventually in the end, it was like, no, there's two commentary tracks. And we went back and we restored it. And it was like, oh, wow, like it turned into this big thing. And so I kind of was just like, well, if you've got nothing, like if there's nothing really planned for it, I was like, there's an old TV show you can try and get and put that on as an extra. And will you let me do like, will you let me write something or do an audio commentary? And that was kind of, I, I kind of <laughs> used like, that as no an opportunity. no audio commentary for you, Dylan. You just yeah, I know. stay in your that, subtitle lane. That's, that's fine. That's fine. But it was, no, it was just more of a, well, if no one's doing anything, I'll yeah. do something. Even something like Erotic Ghost Story, there is heaps you can talk about. There is just genuinely heaps I of love private. how they turned around and they're like, oh, bare bones, eh? How about $75? <laughs> I am really glad they got the episode of Celebrity Talk Show on there. Oh, I love that episode. I think that's how we got in contact as I tweeted about it. I was really surprised by how, like, that was really, really well received. Like, mm. people were like, oh, more of this, please. Well, because we like uh, English-speaking audiences never get that insight into because also Hong like because that that is a very very curious kind of episode of a talk oh, show yeah. as well it's like it's completely off the wall and it's like oh wow like there's another episode of that show on armor of god which has just come out and that's a jackie Ch that's one where they interview jackie chan so like that release was like kind of wrapping up and then they kind of came up to me and they were like oh so i remember you want to write something would you mind writing something for erotic ghost story and i was like Oh, okay. And by that point, I kind of amassed all of this kind of just, I have a stack of research on erotic ghost story of all things. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, I might as well like not let this go to waste and try to fit as much of this as I can in like the thing I wrote for that release. Oh, and I in kind the booklet, of, right? In the booklet, yeah. Oh, that booklet so I wrote is amazing. The, so if anybody doesn't have booklet, it, pick it up. I'm going to see if I can put it online somewhere because that thing sold out really quickly. Yeah, so that booklet's gone then, right? That booklet it was part is of gone. And I'm sure considering what's in that booklet, pictorially i don't think a lot of people who bought that necessarily read up what i wrote oh i so flipped right by those images and i'm like give me that right sweet text i even yeah. uh messaged my pal will sloan and was like yeah. man this booklet's so good there's so much stuff i've never heard about before it's like, <laughs> great work i was writing that and then i kind of shown it i showed it to some other people before i kind of submitted it i was like do you think like what, what do you think of this? And I got a pretty good response from, and these weren't necessarily friends of mine. It was just like mm -hmm. kind of acquaintances. I was like, hey, I wrote this thing, read it. What do you think? And then I was like, you know what? I'll just, the Instagram was just like, I'll just start a thing. Like I like talking about Hong Kong movies and why not? Like I, and kind of, I was like, oh, I should just do like a Twitter or something. I was like, no, I kind of like 
Instagram because I get I can I can write more on it even if people don't necessarily read it mm-hmm. at least I have the option of gives me more text and I don't really want it to be particularly stuffy so I want something that people can just kind of check it when they can I was like oh that's cool I've never seen that before or that's kind of interesting and so that's really how it came about it was just like people were like you know that, that was pretty good you should do something I was like all right why not I mean, my English sources of uh, Hong Kong news was a decade ago. There used to be a website called monkeypeaches.com. But that yeah. was a long time ago. <laughs> it doesn't exist. And yeah. so like when I saw you posting the stuff, I was like, oh my God, this is the good stuff. Because you like po- you like did subtitles for like a 10 minute little mini documentary on Johnny Toe talking about his yeah. process where he's that was, that was the first thing I did because I was like, uh, I might as well open with something good before <laughs> I run out of material. And it's just, oh God, it's time consuming. As you I probably know, I can't even so imagine how time consuming it is, especially yeah. when you don't have that kind of like, you don't have a thousand people liking that Instagram post either for that yeah. instant gratification. Someone's chucked it up on YouTube. I'm surprised. Oh. And they've credited me, which is oh, like, that's oh, that's nice. interesting. Yeah, that was nice. Well, I was like, you could have asked me. I would have given you a better file. I mean, you I should start a YouTube account. I mean, that's just extra work. I know. And like, put the money. It is there. extra work. I thought about that. I'm thinking about it, but I'm like, no, I can barely keep up just making random Instagram posts about really specific Hong Kong movie things that probably no one else cares about. I care. I care. <laughs> I mean, like when you have Hu Shen talking about the reaction that Midnight audiences would have. Yeah. Where, oh, that's great. That's what I want. So people can follow your Instagram if they just go to your Twitter, uh, Futurism. As I've got it in posts. my bio, yeah. So definitely follow that. And is there any Thanks way that people out. can like... I swear oh, I didn't pay Justin to do this. <laughs> no, you, you did not. I mean, I'm just a fan. <laughs> And so you're literally the only person doing it and you're doing it very well as well. <laughs> so like, as someone who has read like auto-translated articles being like, is that what Choi Hark said? I don't know, it doesn't <laughs> sound right, but whatever, I got no other sources. That it's it's great because you're like a fan and you know this stuff and you speak the language so you can actually understand. I should, speaking of Choi Hark, is yeah. he as like difficult to understand in interviews as I've heard some people say he is? He does a lot of interviews in English. Oh, I hate it. I'm like, why don't you just do interviews in Cantonese, man? I I find those kind of hard to follow. Yeah. But if you understand Cantonese, I feel like sometimes he's doing real-time translation in his head. Mm. He's probably, in his head, he's speaking Cantonese. And then he he real-time translates that into English, which is why sometimes it just comes off really strangely. That makes sense, because like in the Lisa Morton book that she wrote, The Cinema of Troy Hart, great book, there's an interview with him, and it does have that he must have been speaking in English to her, because there's that kind of like stream of consciousness, like, wait, does this make any sense? I don't know how good his English is like mm-hmm. I'm really curious because like all of like all of those new wave guys well most of them they were all like they all got educated in the U.S. He's done like commentaries in English so obviously he feels that he's comfortable enough speaking in English. He's, he normally does it with someone else though doesn't he? Like I think yeah he's got like uh, the man who uh, shall not be named he did a bunch of commentaries. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes him <laughs> he did a really good Cantonese commentary for what is it Flying Swords of Dragon Gate. Yes uh, he also did one on Seven Swords that's only on the oh, 3D really? Blu-ray and on Missing he also does an English subtitle commentary track. Oh I I have to admit I've never seen Missing. Not good. Because that, 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 that came out at, you know, that, that was a low point. That was a, a very low point of his career, which he it had to It was a fascinating period in Hong Kong where if you bought a certain special edition of certain movies, it would have subtitle commentary tracks. Like I know you shoot, I shoot at a commentary. The two-disc yeah. edition of Dog Bite Dog, the yeah. one that uh, Soi Chang had English subtitle commentary, but I've never seen that out in the wild. Like it's long gone. 
I think I might have that. I gotta check. I didn't know they had a commentary on it. Yep. So because you brought up you should I shoot. I think all of those Palo Chung movies, I think he's done a commentary for all of them. How disheartening has it been? to see Hong Kong directors, speaking of Pang Ho Chung, have to react to the political situation where you're like, no, what are you saying? I'm not saying this just as like a, for comfort reasons, but Mm -hmm. I I think a lot of people say things because they just want to be hired. I think most people probably don't really care that much, but it's just a matter of, well, this is the market now. This is the situation. I have to pick a side or you know, I'll be kind of sidelined. I mean, there's only one side they can pick if they want to continue making movies. Yes, that's right. But then but then that brings up like a lot of people who don't say anything at all. And then you're always kind of like, well, how do, like, why is it okay for them to not- Not say anything? Say anything. And why is it that some of you who I feel like, oh, I feel like you would be fine not having to say anything, but you have to go and make a show of it. Mm-hmm. And that's always the, that's where I'm always a bit kind of like, is it because they have dirt on you? Like, I don't, I'm not, I'm not saying that people can't be patriotic, but it's just, why is it's it like, that you of all people, for example, has to, you know, you have to do all of this and then someone else can just, yep, they never say anything at all. They're not on social media. Well, you would they're think not that like Pan O'Chung would just not have said anything. Well, he's, um, he's done. He's moved to Canada. Apparently. I heard that. Like he moved yeah. to Canada because he couldn't get movies off the ground. So even yep. though he sold himself out in the attempt to make more movies. I think he did it in a really bad way because mm-hmm. his his fan base was always relatively younger. And they were like Hong Kong. I mean, that's yeah, all were, love in the puff is about. I, like I thought him him doing that was a very like that was just you did not think this through. But then in the end he moved to Canada. So yeah, and now he lives in Canada, supposedly. <laughs> yeah, what does that mean? Yeah. You can go <laughs> and try to couldn't even get him. a movie off the ground. It's almost like these organizations, but, even though that you know you give whatever they want, it doesn't matter at the end of the day. But, but he was trying to make a wuxia film. Yeah, he wanted so. to make a big, which is so funny because it's like, there are so many mainland wuxias that are coming out. He, well, he wanted to do Deer in the Cauldron, which is what Royal Tramp is based off of, the mm-hmm. Stephen Chow movie, which is, that's kind of a very special wuxia because the main character in that is not heroic at all and doesn't know martial arts. Mm-hmm. He's like, he is like Stephen Chow. <laughs> um, I, I mean, speaking of Stephen Chow, Tony Lung starred in the Deer in the Cauldron TV show, right? Yes. If you've seen Roald Tramp at the start when Stephen Chow's kind of doing his, like, he's telling a story in the middle mm-hmm. of the, like, tea house or whatever, I feel like he's aping Tony Lung a bit. I mean, but I've always felt like if you, and I don't know if it's because they grew up or they were friends and they kind of, they had similar interests and they joined, like, they went into the business together. It's just one became really mm-hmm. much more famous than the other straight away. I feel like when you watch Tony Lung do comedy, you can see glimpses of Stephen Chow in there. Fascinating. And I think when Stephen Chow does his really kind of dramatic acting again, you can see him. I don't know if he, I don't I don't want to I don't want to like kind of um, talk down Stephen Chow as a dramatic actor, but I feel like yeah, I kind of can see what Tony Long does. You kind of do a very similar thing, just as when Tony Long does comedy, you're kind of doing a Stephen Chow thing. You're doing a Stephen Chow thing. You're doing a Stephen Chow thing. I never I would have never noticed that, but now I'm going to keep my eyes peeled when I watch those movies. I mean, the issue with Stephen Chow is now Tony Long has made a big Marvel North American movie. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. Stephen Chow cannot shoot films in Canada due to, uh, you know. His, his triad, con- his supposed triad connection, yes. which depending on which, you know, which, which, which tawdry tabloid you get your news from is like all over the place in terms of how deep he is in them. Really? So like Stephen Chow, is he like great tabloid fodder in Hong Kong? This is the sad thing as well. Like so much kind of Hong Kong movie news and information is oral mm-hmm. history and also comes in these kind of tabloids, which 
a lot of them you can't get anymore. And so there's all of these great stories which are lost. Like I was um going through the like records of something one time and I found out, and I didn't know this. This is like new to me. And this like in the last few years, I found out at one point Stephen Chow was going to make an It Man movie. Really? Yes, directed I- by Jeff Lau. <laughs> wow. And that would have been like Odyssey. in the prime, I hope, not yes, like current Jeff Lau. Yeah. They're not current Jeff Lau, but at one point Jeff Lau was going to make an It Man movie starring Stephen Chow. And it was like, no one's ever talked about this, but it's there in writing and kind of like these old newspapers and these old magazines. Like, obviously it was big enough at some point. Now, have you heard the story of Wong Jing getting his teeth knocked out? I remember reading that somewhere on a forum. So many people had their teeth knocked out. Eric yeah. Tang, I know, has the big one where he was he was probably kind of um, beaten up by thugs and then was hospitalized. Wow. I never heard that yeah. story. That would be like a great sort of just massive, you know, kind of rabbit hole to go down. Dylan, do like, it. Do it. Put it in the book. Like the underground, the tabloid like, history of Hong Kong cinema. Hong, Hong Kong triad stories. Of just, well, maybe not know. the Hong Kong triad stories, but like, you know, they're involved <laughs> even, in it. But even like stuff like, you know, like um, there's the the really early, there's that, what is it, that China White movie where it was like, no, everyone was held at gunpoint and it was supposed to make that. Really? That's the Ronnie Yu film, isn't it? That's the well, Ronnie Yu one made in Amsterdam. Yeah. I did not know that was everyone was held so at the producer on that was the really really seedy guy who became Jet Li's manager and then was shot what <laughs> so this is like this it's like a whole it's like a whole thing there yeah oh man I want to hear all these stories because yeah. I don't know any of them I, I feel like you could say something like everybody knows this right and I'd be like I've never heard this oh, the, the, the Jet Li one is insane like that one's you know you, you could do a documentary on that alone of just are there any kind of like pockets of cinema that you love out of Hong Kong that you feel hasn't been covered in like English friendly releases as far oh, as like in the UK or like special editions and stuff like that? Definitely. So like um, in the, God, this would have been like the eighties you had, um, I never remember his English name. Is it Donald Mack? The guy who directed Long Arm of the Wall. He was a really prolific producer and he made all of these kind of very gritty kind of um some of them are supposed to be sort of, you know, realistic and serious dramas, but they kind of just turn into melodramas. But they're all very much like in cut from the same cloth as things like Long Arm of the Wall. These very sort of attempts at serious cinema, which are just really gritty and overly kind of melodramatic. So there's all of this stuff there, which I feel like even in Hong Kong doesn't really like it would have been a really big part of, you know, the cinema culture. But then people seem to have just forgotten about them, like. People always just talk about Long Island of the Wall. Like, yeah, but none of his other movies, like he, that was the one movie he directed, but then mm-hmm. no one ever puts out the other stuff he's produced. Cause he also like, he produced Sex and Zen. That's one, I would say one sort of thing I would like to see more explored because just as like an accessibility thing, cause that's like this whole weird kind of period that no one talks about. Cause you know, people will always talk about Shaw Brothers and early Golden Harvest and that. And then you get to the eighties, which is interestingly when kind of Hong Kong people see Hong Kong as being most prosperous and all of those movies are sort of like, yeah, no one really knows what they are. It's like, oh, people will say Police Story and, you know, all yeah. those. But then, no, you've got all this other stuff happening as well. Like, you know, all the, um, uh, like the Sammo Hung produced movie is like the like the sort of ones which came off after Lucky Stars and all those. Like uh, License to Steal? Is it like in that era? Yeah, or, or... or like, was it Pom Pom? I think it's called. Oh, I, mean, uh, I mean, I want a Blu-ray of Pom Pom and Hot Hot, which has like the greatest gunfights. Pom Pom, please. All yeah. the Pom Poms. All of that kind of stuff, which is just like, yeah, like no one... I feel like genre fiends would really get in on that because those are just insane. Yeah. I mean, listen, I like genre fiends will buy anything those companies put out. They make it a big box set. There's a booklet. They're like, oh yeah, please give it to me. And then I guess the other, other thing, which I would like to see more of, and this is just anywhere is like, 
the Hong Kong new wave stuff, like the actual Hong Kong new wave stuff, because you couldn't get it forever now and then kind of reappears. So we got cops and robbers and there's like man from the brink. Did somebody put the sword? Yes, there's the sword. I think it's an upscale though, but like at least it's coming out. So people know this movie exists. Give and me then Criterion that, are doing both people, of all things. Give me is, the Troy Hark, um, you know, the Chaos Trilogy, as the French company called it. Uh, oh, Butterfly uh, Murders, We're Gonna Eat You, and uh, Dangerous Encounters of the Encounters. First Kind. I think Dangerous Encounters might still technically be banned in Hong Kong. I, it's probably never been unbanned. I think it's just a thing where... Because uh, a company in France put out the theatrical version, as well hmm. as a like composite cut of the VHS Troy Hark found. Yeah, it's got little VHS bits cut in. Yeah. Yeah. They have both versions of those. I wonder if there's even any negative they could use. Who even owns something like that? Uh, I, probably Fortune Star, because they put out the Butterfly Murders, but it's a theatrical print they obviously use. They didn't they didn't have a negative because mm-hmm. it has like green lines in it and all that stuff. Well, so This doesn't mean anything, but I know that movie's been restored. So Oh, really? Okay. Butterfly Murders has been restored, so the chances of that getting a physical release at some point is high. Oh, I'm excited because I'm not. Released. I'm not. This. This is. I'm not confirming anything. I'm just saying that that is one of the. Like basically, if you if you notice something's been restored, that will probably come where, out. Where where has it point. played restored though? Played. I think at a festival in Hong Kong. Okay. Or somewhere. I, they I did, just wouldn't have heard about they, it. They yeah. Show but... it. But I know that is one that they've restored because people always kind of ask. You know what? You know, people always kind of have their wish list of things, and it's mm-hmm. always just like. I think it's just a matter of waiting for Fortune Star to restore things. Mm-hmm. And then once they've restored them, then well, finally we they, can get our special edition of Future Cops, right? Oh god, that that would be a great one to do as well. I mean, Future Cops I, that would sell a million copies. It's like a Street Fighter you, Two parody. It's insane. Would they, <laughs> like, but would you get sued for putting that out? No, you could just say parody laws. You'd be fine because there, there is a Mario parody in that. And oh yeah, how, and speaking of Nintendo AIDS jokes, <laughs> yeah. there's an AIDS joke in that. Yeah, yeah it, it falls under parody, right? You wouldn't. Yeah, it's it's a parody. It no counts. one's looking at that stuff. Shh. And there's a there's a Blu-ray of uh, Future Cops you can find that. Yes, Hong Kong. Yeah. Or I mean, like Peking Opera Blues seems to be another one that is like should be released by a company, or unless it's owned by Miramax or some other weird company. Oh, well, that's the whole Golden Princess thing that people have to constantly repeat. So um, so whenever like people kind of go, oh, you know, what movies you want to see, and then yeah. obviously people say things like. A Chinese ghost story and swordsman two and hard boiled and once a thief and all those John Woo's that everyone loves the killer and all that they were owned by a company called Golden Princess and they are stuck in rights hell. Those will never get a release outside of Asia. And I'm not being pessimistic about it. It's just it's a uh, it's not gonna happen. It's basically the 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 kind of um, the parent company who owned Golden Princess. They once they uh, stopped doing film production, they sold all their assets. And then whether or not it was a clerical error or like a lack of hindsight, they sold all this stuff to Fortune Star, which is why you still do see Blu-rays of things like, a, you know, a Chinese ghost story and Hard World and all that, like in Asia, but they only sold the rights to those films in Asia. And they actually still, they retained the worldwide rights themselves. But as far as they're concerned, they're done with it. And whenever film festivals or film labs or universities or whoever have tried and contacted them about these movies, they just ignore them. We just need someone who's really loaded, who loves Hong Kong movies to go, I'll Here's go and the buy these. We, I never believe I would see a Shaw Brothers Blu-ray set in North America, ever. So it could happen, right? And, and considering, like, I feel like Shaw Brothers is especially popular in North America as mm-hmm. well. I was talking to someone about this the other day, but Shaw Brothers stuff isn't actually that well-known in Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. It's really, like, Shaw Brothers is really more kind of, you know, in the Western world, which has really kept, like, Shaw Brothers alive, like, Shaw Brothers in Hong Kong itself isn't 
And I think, again, it goes down to for the longest time you couldn't get these movies. The films which are remembered are the ones which won't come out in the West because it's all like the Chinese operas and the musicals. And it's like an older generation specifically remember all those. But then, you know, you bring up like the Venom movies and that's like, yeah, like those all got eclipsed by Golden Harvest and Bruce Lee and Jackie Chan and Samuel Hung. 88 Films are going to be like, listen, we have an $80 box set of the 72 Tenants. You guys love that, right? <laughs> right? right? <laughs> you like Kung Fu Hustle? It's kind of like that. <laughs> That's got an audio commentary as well. Oh, it does. Subtitled with Stephen Chow yeah, and no, his cast no. member, which is hmm. funny to me because Stephen Chow, I mean, from what I've read, is supposedly a tyrant on set. And then these poor people are forced to do a commentary with him. I, th- I think I think with Stephen Chow and like the whole tyrant thing, it's just, you probably just know, have to know how to flatter him. I oh, feel yeah. like that's probably all it is. Yeah. There's even a commentary on the CJ7 North American release that's subtitled. Oh, is there? Yeah. I don't, I don't know if I'm in a rush to rewatch No, that nobody's in a rush to revisit CJ7. To be honest, he gives a very good performance in that movie. Yeah. Like, I think he is very good at it. But he's not just, in all in the whole movie, though. Like, there's not it's enough It's just cow. a very strange movie. Mm-hmm. It's just, I don't know. It's like, it is a kid's movie, but is it? Dylan, I could pick your brains for another two hours. <laughs> Thank you very much. And people, if you see a film that Dylan did the subtitles on, make sure to tweet about it. Be like, 88 Films, what a great subtitling job on this picture. 